The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. This is the Freeman Report on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello and welcome to the Freeman Report, which puts the world's leading scientists, doctors, politicians and expert commentators right at the heart of today's news talk and our fight for freedom, liberty and justice. It is Tuesday, the 30th of January. My name is James Freeman. And on today's show, we'll be hearing about another scandal, if we need another one, that is, that has been known about for some time. It's been reported on extensively in the mainstream press. And yet, like the grooming gang scandal, little has been done to address the injustices that have taken place. My guest today is the daughter of Ozu Mabachieli, um, who died on the 5th of June 2017. It is clear from photos of the body um, that he suffered a punctured wound onto his head and there was extensive blood found at the scene. A witness also came forward later on saying that they had seen an attack on Ozu. However, Despite there being lots of evidence to suggest a murder investigation should have taken place, the discredited and now deceased pathologist, Dr. Michael Heath, um, determined the cause of death to be a heart attack. Now, Ozo's daughter, Ify Mabaliachi, has been fighting ever since um, to get the case reopened, which now rests on getting the cause of death on his death certificate overturned. Now, you would think this would be an easy task, given the history of Dr. Michael Heath entering incorrect causes of death on death certificates. But apparently it's not. And so Ify's torment continues to this day. And Ify is not the only victim of poor and shoddy work by discredited home office pathologists. There's a WhatsApp group with hundreds of people in it who claim to be the victim of Heath's and other pathologists' incorrect conclusions. And the Home Office know all about the problem, as I will outline in a moment, but nothing is being done. It's almost like they're hoping that now the most famous perpetrator, Dr. Michael Heath, is dead, that all of the miscarriages of justice and other victims affected by his and others' work will disappear with him. This is a huge problem. According to an investigation by The Telegraph in 2021, one in five, that's 20% of post-mortem reports, register the wrong cause of death and that Britain's coroner's courts are totally broken. A lack of oversight of the work, according to The Telegraph, allows pathologists, um, means that they can do unscrupulous work and totally incompetent doctors are acting with impunity and are denying families um, the truth about what happened to their loved ones. Now, registering an incorrect cause of death isn't just about the death certificate, as it can prevent insurance payouts, they can shut down inquests and safeguarding inquiries, and as today's story will show, they can even scupper police investigations in murder cases. And what is really shocking about this is that the failings of Dr. Michael Heath and other pathologists were allowed to continue despite repeated warnings of failings over the course of two decades. 
in some of the cases put before the General Medical Council, the GMC, Dr. Heath recorded healthy organs that didn't even exist in the body. Um, Anne House, who died in 2020, had an organ recorded by Dr. Heath on her death certificate that had been removed from her body years previously. Rebecca Reese, who lost her mother, appeared on the Freeman Report last year to talk about end-of-life care and how a second autopsy of her mother's body had found midazolam and fentanyl in her body that the hospital denies giving her. However, because the second autopsy in Rebecca's case was carried out six months after her death, it was impossible to ascertain if it was the midazolam and fentanyl that killed her. So nothing was done by the police, despite controlled drugs being found in her mother's body with no explanation. And the first autopsy was done by guess who? Dr. Michael Heath. It turns out that he recorded a totally fictitious cause of death and failed to do any toxicology test despite requests for him to do so. At least two murder convictions have been overturned in recent years due to Heath's dodgy work. People that spent time in prison. One man spent 12 years in prison um, for, for killing him, his girlfriend, um, when in fact he did nothing of the sort. And this is another scandal that goes all the way to the top, as Heath and at least four other pathologists that were also guilty of shocking work were on a special list of around 50 pathologists that were approved by the Home Office. And because they were on this list, they were able to work on the most high-profile um, cases. But it doesn't stop there, um, because when Heath was finally removed from the Home Office's approved list of pathologists, he was still allowed to carry on practising by the General Medical Council, which meant that he was able to go on and cause more devastation for more people. The reason he got away with this is because in the weeks before he was due to face a Home Office investigation verdict, he quit the Home Office approved list, which meant the case just went away and the GMC failed to take its own action, meaning Heath was allowed to continue his work as a pathologist. And that was despite several decades of problems and scores of shocking cases, including Heath's work on the high-profile case involving Michael Barrymore. Now, if the GMC had struck Heath off its register, Rebecca Rees would have been looking at a murder case for a mother, or maybe the hospital would have admitted giving her the drugs if they didn't think they were going to get away with it. There are literally thousands of cases that have a question mark hanging over them now. But instead of investigating them, those in power are clearly hoping they can ride this out and so are ignoring the families and victims. So today we will tell the story of one of those cases that in my mind is clearly a murder case. There are many questions surrounding this case, like why was Heath appointed to the case in the first place? Did the Met know that Heath would record a wrong cause of death? Because there are many reasons to suspect that this might have been a Met police cover-up to protect a prominent gangland yardie. It is a shocking case. I've spent at least two hours on the phone with Iffy, and I've seen awful pictures of her deceased father, um, 
I'm no pathologist or police investigator, but everything Ippy has told me, along with the evidence that she's shown me, begs the question, why was this not a murder investigation? And why, given all of the evidence collected by Ify and the fact that Heath was involved, is this case not being reopened? So stay tuned to hear Ify's story in a moment after breaking news story with Gemma Cooper. If you want to get in touch um, to suggest any topics, maybe you've been affected by Dr. Michael Heath, many thousands of people have, then email me at jamesfreeman at tntradio.live. And by now, I hope you're all following TNT on social media to help us grow um, as we go through time. Um, but if you don't, please make sure you give us a follow um, next time you log in on X. Just go to at TNT Radio Live. My name is James Freeman, and this is the Freeman Report for today's News Talk TNT. Connecting the dots, painting the bigger picture. They always have great conversation. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello, Gemma. How are you doing today? Yes, very good. Thank you. Program sounds very interesting. You know, collusion and cover up by the establishment. Who'd have thought that? Who'd have thought that? <laughs> but interesting that uh, that if 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 you know if it's alleged that it's a it was a gangland, or it was to protect a prominent gang member. You know, there's the whole relationship between the criminal underworld and the police there, isn't there? Which you know, police would rather pretend doesn't exist, but everybody knows it does. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a lot of questions. And, you know, that, by the way, is um, just, like I said, there's a lot of questions which point in that direction. It doesn't necessarily mean that is the case. Um, but even if that's not the case, this is a shocking case, right? Because he was definitely, well, not definitely, but, you know, as far as I can see, he was murdered. I mean, he's got a big gash in his head. There were blood um, at the scene. His, his clothes were soaked, soaked in blood. And yet, um, Dr. Michael Heath, has put him down as having a heart attack. Um, really, really um, suspicious um, goings on. There's other stuff as well, which you'll hear about in a moment. Um, and also, like I said, the really important thing is about this is there is a WhatsApp group with hundreds of victims in there that are saying similar things, not necessarily murder cases, but um, cases where they've said Heath has put the wrong cause of death on the, on the birth certificate, uh, death certificate rather, which has huge implications for people you know like i said insurance payouts in some cases people have gone to prison and in some cases like today's story people who should have gone to prison are walking free at the moment so it is a big story that needs to be addressed absolutely looking forward to listening to that and watching that with great interest james right what have you got for me today Gemma? Well, there's been an earthquake in Scotland, uh, quite a significant one, actually. And earthquakes are rare in that part of the world, but they are possible because of the amount of faults that, uh, that, that exist, in, in, especially in the west coast of Scotland and in the highlands. So, and they are geared up for it when it, when it does happen. Uh, and some of their structures now, much like the Keswick Bridge in Inverness, that's been des designed specifically to withstand an earthquake. And we have had one. It, it, it happened last night, yesterday evening, but details are just filtering through now. Uh, and it, it caused 3.3 on the Richter scale uh, on the Isle of Mull, but also being felt 30 miles uh, radius from the epicenter of the quake, which happened seven miles 
underground. And we've had some some reports coming in saying that it was like a car crashing into the house. Well, that's quite a significant thing. If you imagine, you know, you're in the house and a car crashes into it, that's a significant impact. You'll know about that. Uh, and people say their houses cracked and shook, windows and doors rattled, the furniture vibrated. Uh, and somebody else said that they thought there'd been a huge explosion because of the noise that was generated as the as the plates were rubbing together. Um, they are rare in that part of the world, but the fact that one's occurred means people are keeping an eye on this. We've got the British Geological Survey Society um, looking at the aftershocks, <coughs> excuse me, which have happened. There were, there were pre-tremors of 2.3 and aftershocks of 2.3. And we all know with the Japan earthquakes that, that aftershock tremors can occur for days and days and days. So we might well see one um, coming back. Um, and the last really significant earthquake in Scotland was in 1880. Uh, that was in Argyll, uh, 5.2. Uh, and, and then after that, 1974, which registered 4.4 on the Richter scale. And that was again in the Northwest Highlands, which is a, a, a sort of a geological hotspot. I mean, when you think of the Great Glen, it goes from Inverness all the way down to Fort William. That encompasses the huge swathe of water that is Loch Ness because you've got that huge fault line running all the way down. Um, so Scotland is prone but as I say, it's rare. It is rare. And one one of this size in that part of the world does warrant attention. And especially the reaction it's generated from local residents, you know, that they thought there was an explosion, the car crashing into their house. So, yeah, you know, geological societies are keeping an eye on this one. I don't think we'll see anything major coming off the back of it, but you never know. You never know. Mother Nature and planet Earth can be very unpredictable. Um, and obviously after Japan, anything with earthquakes that are significant for that th those parts of the world, um, not like the Scotland is on the ring of fire or anything like that, but anywhere that earthquake occurs where it's it's not common, it does warrant attention. So that's what we're looking at uh, today on a Tuesday morning here in the UK. Earthquake in Scotland, 3.3. And many people have taken to uh, social media to describe the effects that they felt and heard. Yeah, and of course, many people in this country won't will have never felt um, an earthquake. Obviously, if you live in Japan, you'd be quite used to them. Um, you know, even small tremors. Um, there was an earthquake. I don't know whether you, when you were doing this story, whether you looked back, but there was an earthquake um, here in the UK in Wales actually um, in the last few years. I remember actually sat at my dining room table in my previous house um, when it happened. I don't know whether you came across that, Gemma. Well, I was looking at the history of earthquakes in Scotland because of the the fault lines that occur up, up there. But yeah, I, I was I saw a few little headlines about England and Wales. I didn't really pay attention to that much. So you can you can actually give us firsthand knowledge and an experience of what it's like being being there when an earthquake strikes. You know, what does it feel like? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a very big. I, d I don't know what it was on the Richter scale, but it was, and it didn't go on for very long. It was literally for probably a second, maybe even less than a second. It felt like um, a couple of jolts but very very um it's not what you'd expect an earthquake to feel like and obviously i've never experienced a proper earthquake that's been prolonged um but it did just feel almost like you're in a car and there's just this jolt and everything moves it, you know there was no noise um or anything like that um we were really unsure what had happened at the time we thought oh maybe it was a a, a lorry um, we thought at the time, because we were quite near a main road and sometimes really big lorries go across there. Um, but then, of course, we heard um, what was going on on the news. Um, but yeah, very, very peculiar um, feeling. Um, and I don't envy people um, living in uh, on the fault lines because, um, you know, when I was in Japan, um, I spent uh, a few weeks um, out there oh, about a decade or so ago. And um, every building you go into the hotel, there's warnings, you know, when you go in the lift up, there's instructions on what to do if there's an earthquake of course a lot of their buildings are built to withstand them but still 
it's um, quite an unnerving uh, thought that there might be an earthquake at any time, particularly when you're on the 20th floor of a skyscraper, as I was. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, really um, quite novel, I guess, for people of Scotland. Yeah, it is. It is a novel experience. They're not common, uh, but they they have built it into the infrastructure now, much like Japan has. Like I say, the Keswick Bridge in Inverness. I don't know if you've been to Inverness. I have a couple of times. It's a huge bridge, a suspension bridge that has been built specifically to to withstand quakes. Also, some of the water pipes now that they have in, in Scotland, especially in the Highlands, they've been designed to withstand tremors and quakes because the possibility in that part of the world is always there. Not as common as uh, as countries on the the, the so called Ring of Fire or the known Ring of fire which is the biggest fault around the world which encompasses places like hawaii japan um but certainly it, it is a fault line area so for people living in that part of scotland and the 30 mile radius from which the quake started you know they they've it, it has been quite a significant thing for them you know like they're saying they thought a car had crashed into their house they thought there'd been an explosion it did go on longer than a, a few seconds um it was enough for people to think what the hell is going on? Uh, it's over now, but certainly for the people of Scotland, it was in that part of Scotland, it was a significant event. Yeah, quite unnerving. And I should imagine there'll be a few people um, who've got a few cracks in their plasterboard that they need to mend as well. All right. Thank you very much um, for that story, um, Gemma. Look forward to speaking with you again tomorrow. And to the rest of you, don't go anywhere because today's story, I think, is going to turn into actually a series of stories because. There are hundreds of people that have been affected by this. As I said, it has been reported in the mainstream media for the best part of two decades, and still nothing is happening about it. Very much like the post office scandal until recently, and also the ongoing grooming gangs scandal. So stay tuned with me, James Freeman, on today's News Talk TNT. TNT's Pella Neuroth Taylor. We, we need to look, do a lot of deconstruction of these phrases and, and really think about what it means, because what does far right mean? I, I'd say that far right means anything that you don't like. And um, it's just a label, a bit like the, the Chinese under Mao, their state press used to call uh, anyone who was an ideological opponent, capitalist pig dogs, whatever. And it was just meant to evoke a response. And it was a signal from the rulers to the rule that this is what you should think without actually having to think. It's, it's, it's a, meant to evoke a sort of Pavlovian reaction that you're a, you, these are bad guys. And uh, a moderate, in, in, in our lingo, I mean, let's see, it's foreign coverage. The BBC will say the moderate blah, blah, blah party in the third world, meaning, well, they're guys we approve of and then the extremist is someone we don't approve of. Helen Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? 
when trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Right, okay. I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming um, Ify Mabaliachi to the show today. I've um, spent probably two hours now, Ify, is it, I think, on the phone with you. Um, I think you're incredibly brave and also you're very determined, which stands you in good stead, I think, in terms of actually getting some justice um, for your father and what happened to him. Um, so, Ify, let's start with your father. Tell us, what was your father like when he was alive? My father was a true gentleman. Um, bear with me, my voice is going a little bit. Um, he was very charismatic, very kind, very intelligent, um, said things how they were. He would help anyone. And he was quite um, known in his community and amongst, um, how can I put it, very good people. Yeah, he was a good guy, a really good guy. Yeah, and you've sent me some lovely photos of um, you with him and him with um, other members of the family. Um, he was 57, yeah. I think, wasn't he, when when he passed away yeah. in, in 2000. Yeah. And seven, seven, it was 2017, wasn't it? Yes, he was, he was the pillar of our family and the grandchildren because I was his only child. I've got three grandsons, so um, they looked up to yeah, him. Yeah, so. Yeah. It was a big loss. Like I said, you were very brave. I I, I know that, um, um, Ify. Now, listen, um, tell us about when you first heard that um, he was missing, because he, he was missing for a few days, wasn't he? And um, it was yes. around the time that there were terrorist attacks in London. So you actually thought he yeah. might be um, involved um, in, in, in that. Tell us about how you found out um, about the fact that he passed away, because it did take a few days, didn't it? Yeah, well, basically, um, the police force gained entry um, of the apartment under a section, and I wasn't notified for multiple hours later from my local force that my father had been found deceased. Yeah, so tell he, the circumstances. Yeah, so he'd been he'd been missing for about four or five days, hadn't he? You yes, on with the police because you live in a different part of the country, and so you had yes. called them repeatedly. In the end, they did break into his um, his um, yeah. flat, didn't they? And then in total, you, I think you got a visit. Yeah, sorry, go in ahead. In total, Ify. I called. In total, I called um, the London terror attack line and the police over a hundred times. Um, they said because he hadn't been a missing person for long enough they weren't prepared to gain entry so it wasn't until day five that they broke into the apartment and gained entry yes yeah 
And you live in a different part of the country. So you actually, um, you knew that they were going to break into the apartment and then you got a knock yeah. at the door, didn't you? What, what, what did the police tell you when they came to the door? Um, well, my local police force had their hats in their hands. And um, I think from that, I drew inferences that it was going to be bad. They didn't give me any detail. They just told me that my dad had been found dead and that I was to call um, the next day the Walthamstow Mortuary and um, my father's landlord. Yeah. Now, Given the circumstances, and we'll talk, we don't need to talk about them at the moment because we will talk about them in a minute, but there were some suspicious, well, very suspicious, some circumstances weren't there. What's normal practice, yeah. isn't it, is for a forensic medical examiner to actually attend the scene itself to assess yes. what has happened. Now, yes. please t tell us what happened because that was what was supposed to happen, but that didn't yeah. happen, yeah. did it? Yeah, um, when I got the incident report, it actually stated that the forensics were called. So they felt the need that they should call the forensics, but they were on another job. So they didn't attend the, the scene, what we now know to be the crime scene. Yeah. yeah, and there's many problems with that, isn't there? Because, of course, you know, what happened in the end was the police just removed the bodies, didn't they? The body. Right. Correct, um, because they could felt they were could confirm that my father was deceased. Um, they basically scooped my father up and removed him from what was a crime scene. Yeah. Now we'll move on in a minute to what the autopsy, which was actually um, the first autopsy, was given by Dr. Michael Heath, the discredited pathologist. Yeah. Um, many cases of him and lots of evidence over two decades of him putting totally ridiculous things on death certificates. Yes. But let's talk first of all. You did actually get to go and see your dad's body, didn't you? But after a lot of, I think you had to fight your case yes. to go and see the body. So tell us yeah. about that and then tell us what you actually saw when you went to see his body. Yeah. I was basically told... Um, to imagine my father had had a cup of tea with God and that I shouldn't identify my father. I replied to them by saying, how do you know you've actually got my father? So I went to Walthamstow Mortuary and my father was behind forensic glass. I couldn't touch him. Upon seeing my father, I could see that he'd been brutally attacked um he had an indentation to his pineal area to his forehead which had coagulated so it clearly happened prior to death his nose appeared to be broken to the left he had other injuries over his face to any lay person um you could see my father had been brutally attacked yeah yeah and if he i've seen some of the photos that you sent me of the body and I can confirm exactly what you saw in person and what you've got for photographic evidence of. Now, there's also some other evidence um, which which you actually got later on, didn't you? Um, there's actually yes. a bag with some of his blood-soaked clothes. Tell us how yes. you came across that bag. So um, after my father's memorial, because my father was kept in the freezer for um, a long period of time, um, in the July, we had a memorial service. And um, back in the Chapel of Rest, um, 
I opened my father's coffin to hold him. Um, the bag was inside the bottom of the coffin and it stated bag for incineration. So this bag of clothes should have been incinerated. Now, I don't want to um, say anything why and how I ended up with this bag, but thank God I ended up with this bag. So I received this bag. I asked the lady if I could take it home. Of course, I'm my father's child. I brought it back to Yorkshire, and upon opening the bag, my father's clothes were covered in blood. Right. Okay. Um, so so far, we've got the, the the photos of which clearly show your dad has been beaten up. You've now, which you got from the coffin, his blood soaked clothes, which had been marked for incineration. God knows why that was, unless it was someone trying to cover things up. We're going to leave it there just for a second because we've got to go to the news headlines. But when we come back, Ify, we'll talk about yeah. what the autopsy said from Dr. Michael Heath. So make sure if you're watching this, you stay tuned with me, James Freeman on TNT. We're ready. We're ready. We're ready. News. 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 Is our business. And we never close. Never close. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland with a look at your TNT headlines. The US Secretary of State has warned tensions in the Middle East are at their highest in more than half a century. Since at least 1973, and arguably uh, even, uh, even before that. France is witnessing a revolution as farmers revolt against ludicrous climate policies, and tech billionaire Elon Musk has announced his Neuralink company has successfully implanted one of its brain chips into a human for the first time. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24-7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk, this is TNT Radio. Right, okay, Ify. So we've we've talked about the evidence. Clearly, your dad had been beaten up. You've got his blood sloped clothes. Now you had two official reports, one from the police and then one from the pathologist. First of all, tell us what the autopsy, what the conclusion was from Dr. Michael Heath. Um, Dr. Michael Heath concluded my father died of natural causes and he had a heart attack. He didn't document anything further. Right. So he okay. didn't document. So yeah, yeah, and of course, obviously, you know, a, a medical examiner, a forensic medical examiner, should have attended the scene, but they didn't because the police called them. They couldn't attend, so they just took the body away. So they've obviously disrupted yeah. all of the evidence there. Um, now, the police report is bizarre, isn't it? Tell us about what the yes. re police report said. Um, uh, which part? I don't want to waffle on. Um. Which yeah, no, that's okay. Directly. If he so, how did they find? How did they find your dad when they came? Yeah, in okay, the yeah. Police? So they said, sorry, James. So they said on um, breaking down the door to the apartment, my father was found in the perfect kneeling position, with the Bible inside his hands, at his bed. So may we add, he had a heart attack, but he was in the perfect kneeling position, with the Bible in his hands at his bed 
he hadn't I mean, fallen over. Me, <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because, um, yeah. you know, I'm not an expert, but I, I think that's a bit of an odd um, position to be in if you died of a yeah. heart attack. Um, there are other suspicious circumstances around that as well, aren't they? Because normally the police, if they were breaking into someone's apartment, um, particularly even if they didn't have the cameras on already and they saw what they saw, they would put the yeah. cameras on, wouldn't they? Because it's part of the evidence correct. gathering process. Yes, Were correct. they on? Is there any now, um, photographic evidence? Right. So when I am challenged on the many appeals that I've had to fight myself, as you know, James, um, apparently all four officers' vest cams were turned off. I did a freedom of information request for, you know, the information of what they saw, and they've refused to provide any information on any of the officers' statements to how my dad was found. Yeah, this is, I mean, just based upon these facts, and I know we, we spent two hours on the phone, and there's a lot of other detail as well, which we haven't yeah. got time to, to, to cover today. So yeah. we're going to just cover the main parts of the story. But I think, you know, what we've shared with the viewers so far, um, to me, at least minimum warrants an investigation by the Met Police. So well, obviously well, you've James, been, so you've, you've, yeah, sorry, go on. Sorry to interject. So basically as the events formed, so we were left with um, injuries, which apparently my dad had a heart attack. We were left with suspicious circumstances where um, the police obviously hadn't done their investigation. The forensics were already called. And then as you personally know, James, there is a witness and there also is a suspect and DNA evidence in the bag for incineration. So all the things in England which warrant an investigation, the categories are ticked, yet I've been fighting for justice for seven years. And then on top of that, we have the negligent pathologist, Dr. Michael Heath, which is just like the cherry on the cake. Yeah, and of course that is now the obstacle, isn't it? Because although yes. I think, you know, there's 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 huge amounts of evidence. I mean, all you need to do is Google Dr. Michael Heath and you will get pages and pages of stories in the mainstream press about all the problems. There was a guy, wasn't there, that was in prison for 12 years for murdering yes. somebody who's now been proved yeah. that he didn't do it in the first place. And that was Innocent. down to yes. Dr. Michael Heath. So yeah. based upon all this... What are what are the Met saying? Because you've obviously been chasing them now for for several yeah. years. What do they yeah. say currently? So in all the appeals, uh, originally the IPCC, then the IOPC, um, they summarise their findings as they are not the pathologist, doc, aka Dr. Michael Heath, and my problems lie with that he found my dad had a heart attack, therefore there is no investigation. So I've been advised that because of technically him, this is why I've been left in hell for seven years. Um, he's also infamous, um, James, um, for the Myra Hindley case and the Lubbock case. I would just like to mention yeah. for messing up on that as well. It is really shocking like because... To yeah, go on, I, Nikki, I need go to on. draw upon a key point to all your watchers and anyone who watches in the future. Dr. Michael Heath was sacked under government in year 2006. So this guy shouldn't have really been performing anything forensically. I just want to add that. 
Yeah, that is important. Um, and, and obviously the GMC, the General Medical Council, which holds the register for doctors and pathologists, they allowed him to continue. So there are hundreds of cases that happened after yes. he was taken off this home office list that he should yeah. never have ever been working. And um, yours is one of yeah. them. Rebecca Reese, who I've had on the show, is another one. Now, yeah. um, Ify, you spoke, I think, very, very recently to someone called David Martin. Tell us who David Martin yes. is and what he's uh, told you. Yeah, David Martin is an amazing gentle, gentleman, from my opinion. Um, you know, you can see he's got empathy. Um, he is the Professional Standards Authority um, for complaints and appointments. He's the head officer. So he oversees and his team, the General Medical Council. So they govern, you know, not only the General Medical, but the Woodruff midwifery and any other kind yeah. of medical bodies now he's technically told me and some of the other victims of heath that i'm sorry to say it like this that since Heath has died suddenly our cases technically die with him and that now we ha have no remedy um for our loved ones and getting the truth for our loved ones, there's no remedy, um, James. Yeah, yeah, which 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 to me sounds absolutely ridiculous. Um, I am conscious of time, so I'm going to just um, say some other things as well without going into too much yeah. detail. But you have had some help with MPs. Um, your yeah. MP has changed over the years. I think David Davis yeah. is now your MP. You have sent detail to do, to him but you haven't had a reply yet. So I'm going to help you with that. We'll, we'll copy him on this interview, some clips on this interview and see Thank if we you. can get David Davis um, helping you. Now, Ify, you're not the only one, are you? Tell us about this WhatsApp yeah. group, how many people are in there and the types of um, sort of um, cases that are, um, yeah. you know, the victims are in yeah. that group. So um, basically, I have a Facebook, sorry to be clout chasing here, but called hashtag together for justice. And because of that, other victims and myself have come together. So what's happened is I was introduced to a WhatsApp group, which has multiple victims of um, families of the pathologist, Dr. Michael Heath. Now, um, we've all come together and tried to support each other. Um, there was going to be a tribunal held in the October, and as we know, Heath died suddenly in September. So now there's no day in court for any of the other victims. Now we have victims who Heath has stated their relatives have died of an organ um which was never even in their body. We've have had other yeah. people who we've got it, it's so horrific, it goes but beyond negligence. We have innocent people who have been sent to prison who should never have even been in prison, James. Um, it's just, he's so unfit for purpose and I know he is no longer with us. However, we still don't have the truth. So now we are either crying out for a public inquiry or um, an independent, you know, we, we we have nowhere to go. We don't know where to turn, James. This is why we're coming to amazing yeah. people like yourself. The media has tried to block us, um, the mainstream, throughout the course. Um, we feel the biggest problem was because Heath was still alive. But it's so traumatic, James. It is so traumatic. People have fought for justice for many years and... Um, 
the whole um, it's it, just it, so it is truly James. terrible. Yeah, it absolutely truly terrible. Um, if he and of course the problem you've got here is a little bit like um, I think the post office scandal in a way, in the sense that the problem is so big. This is a huge problem. It's not just Michael Heath, is it? I think there no. were four other four other yes. pathologists on the Home Office list of fifty pathologists yeah. who were kind of rubber stamped by the Home Office. That have also yeah. committed, um, uh, you know, errors um, and, and yeah. prolific over a long period yeah. of time, like Dr. Michael Heath. So Correct. there are hundreds, if not thousands, of cases that where yeah. miscarriage of justice have happened and all sorts of other things. How does it feel? Add, James, other people. Yes, sorry it. to interject. Other people have actually come forward to me. Um, with their de like their death certificates that Heath has done, and they've even questioned their relatives' deaths. And these are cases the GMC aren't even aware of, James. So this, right. what I feel they're scared of, is going to open the floodgates. And that's why yeah. they're trying to silence everyone. Because this problem is so big, no one wants to hold responsibility for these errors. Um, yeah, James. exactly. And of course, you know, the amount of work in re reopening a lot of these cases and the cost involved will be, I'm sure, um, putting people off um, admitting and, and and sort of talking about this. Um, finally, yeah. um, Ify, how does it feel? I mean, we're now in 2024. It's seven years after nearly your, your father passed away. How do you feel about everything at the moment? Um. I, I, how can I put this? I used to respect the law. I studied law at the University of Sheffield. Um, how can I say I was walking around with my eyes closed, never even had a parking ticket. I always believe that something severe as murder or, you know, other severe, prolific things, the police and the public bodies would do their job. I've lost faith in, um, our, our legal system, our, not everyone, James, I'm not going to say everyone, but what I've learned is when you're trying to fight the powers that be, you don't stand a chance, um, that you're silenced. And if you don't have financial backing, which many of the victims have had to lose their businesses, sell their homes, there's no more money for legal funding. Um, no one will help you. It's almost like they know because you can't get that legal representation, you'll just be brushed under the carpet. So there's no remedy. But I still have my father's murderer, that legal representation, you'll just be brushed under the carpet. So there's no remedy, but I still have my father's murderer walking the streets. I have evidence that my father was murdered, James. Do you know what I mean? So I just feel like you can get away with murder in England, yeah. which is horrific to say, James. I'm sorry to say that, but you technically yeah, can just get thing... away with murder. Exactly. The other thing, if he is, we've actually got a murderer who is walking the streets free, free yeah. to, to do it again to somebody else. To so, do it again. Um, absolutely. So it's a truly awful. Um, Ify, listen, you've been incredibly brave Thank coming you. on the show Thank today. You. Thank, Thank you so you. much for telling us your story. And um, yeah. we're not just going to do this as a one-off. We will come back to you and get you back on the show, um, hopefully when you've managed to get in touch with David Davis and get get this case moving forward. Um, thank you. God thank bless. you so much, Ify. Thank you.
Thank you. God bless you, James. Right. Okay. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, I'm hoping we will have Alan Miller from Together um, on the line. He's actually at a protest in London at the moment. Um, They're protesting um, um, against an end-of-life care ruling. Um, So we're going to try and get him on the phone now. So hopefully Alan will be us after this short break. So don't go anywhere. Stick with me, James Freeman, on TNT. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're travelling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. 1. Check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. 2. Think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighbourhood safer place. 3. It's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. This is The Freeman Report with your host, James Freeman, on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Wow, what a story that is from Ify, incredibly brave woman and determined to get justice for her father. Um, if you fancy following Ify, um, just get yourself over to um, X. You, she's, um, you've used the hashtag together for justice, four being the number four. Um, but I will get Ify back on because I do want to follow up this case and help her to try and get um, some awareness of her case and hopefully get it reopened and a murder investigation started. Right, okay, let's move on. Um, I'm hoping we've got Alan Miller on the line. Hello, Alan. Hello there, how are you doing, James? Yeah, I'm all right, Alan, I'm all right. Um, this is obviously a roving report today, isn't it? You're at a protest. Tell us where you are in London. I'm at University College Hospital in London, uh, James. Uh, and um, the reason I'm here is because uh, there is a uh, patient uh, who has been starved and dehydrated for over 46 days. Uh, the families, in the end, went to the Court of Protection because, for some reason, University College Hospital, which is part of the NHS Foundation Trust, NHS England, seems this 
individual, this person, this human being, as not being worthy of going to the court of protection. And basically, it seems to be, James, it's a livable pathway through another uh, mechanism, another door, something that was meant to have been abolished. And the idea that, remember, we cast our minds back not so far ago where they were saying, don't kill granny, save people. And here we have a, a college, a medical uh, institution, renowned internationally, that is basically starving and dehydrating someone to death. The families have got involved. Uh, the court of protection, the judges, was not able to actually tell them to feed them, although he can go again, the judge can, he or she can go along with them being starved. Um, and so we're in this terrible situation where this end-of-life protocol that seems to have been put on a long time ago, over a month and a half ago, as with this assumption, oh, well, they're not, perhaps if they were younger, and they, this was said as well, if they were younger, uh, it, wouldn't, it would be treated differently. This shocking, astonishing treatment of a human being. Uh, so people have come uh, to make their voices heard today, together supporting uh, the organizations, the families that are doing this, families against medical, um, well, there's a number of them basically, but um, families against uh, medical euthanasia uh, and other members of the family, uh, networks of people who are opposed to this. Uh, and I think it's really about this, James, because together we're about the principles a universal principle of choice, rights, privacy, freedoms. And that means that even if one is incapacitated, it's one's family um, who are able to do that. And it's not just down by decree. And the families very much believe that. Had, she, had this person, this patient, have been provided that hydration and that food and intravenously and in other ways, they would be in a very different set of circumstances. Now, 46 days down the road, Things are different, of course. So, yeah, that's why I'm here. That's why Together is supporting this. And we're making the point about end-of-life protocols uh, in the United Kingdom at a time where the Liverpool pathway was meant to have been dispensed with. But seems like, particularly during lockdowns and continuing from there, this is what's going on. So, Alan, let's just I just want to go over these facts because they are shocking. So, this um, elderly lady has been starved for 46 days, but that hasn't obviously finished her off. She's still getting fluids. So my understanding is that the, um, the family went to the court of protection over the weekend and now the hospital is also removing fluids. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Exactly right. So it was on Friday. That is shocking. Yes, it is. I mean, you know, what you've got is a situation where uh, the person in question, if they were in a position to argue this case, would not have agreed to this. Their family members know this and they are there um, doing this and yet it is falling on deaf ears. So effectively, what it means is, and we remember, don't kill grandma was the big slogan during COVID when actually, you know, not to get sidetracked on this, but actually a really detrimental impact to all older people, punishing young and other people, but not protecting older people and the vulnerable, and then having end-of-life protocols that meant uh, these sorts of things happen during lockdown. Now, this is happening still now. This is not just during the just. It's not just during lockdown to do with a range of really significant issues that we have to address, which is people being looked at as statistics, people concerned about bed blocking, 
numbers, you know, our great NHS that we all clap for. These are the fundamental, the moral questions, the political questions that we need to address. And uh, yeah, it's shocking, but it's, it's what's going on right this minute. Yeah, and it's incredibly inhumane as well, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, I've had um, from an expert, um, from professors, explained that it's a terrible way, actually, to die, even if they are giving you drugs, to to, to be dehydrated and starved to death. Um, so absolutely despicable. Now, Alan, um, together, are doing some fantastic work around this, aren't they? Tell us the wider work that Together are doing to try and get attention on, on this topic and, and hopefully um, get things changed. Yeah, well, don't change. We've just done a, a big panel discussion with a number of people, uh, with Amanda Hunter, who's the uh, chair for Together Health and Social Care, with Kevin Yule, professor, who's speaking, spoken consistently in the press about uh, you, you know, against assisted suicide, euthanasia, killing people, basically, uh, and others. And uh, we've got to campaign it together around social health care and also around end-of-life protocols to say, whilst these laws are in place, James, this is the thing, right? In, in general, in principle, the laws are in place that you should not be able to do certain things. But what happens in practice is that decisions are made and effectively there's a kind of de facto series of things going on where people are being treated like this. So we want to raise it uh, as a public question. We want the public to be engaged. We want to bring it to MPs uh, and to uh, Parliament and also to make sure the Department of Health and Social Care and also NHS England, the Trust and others are very aware of it. There are millions of people that are carers and families, as we know, across Britain. Uh, these are some of the people that we obviously feel so much about, like we do with children, but are vulnerable and our elderly and we have a responsibility a, a duty to make sure we protect them they've looked after us many of them throughout throughout our lives and so what we're saying is that everyone in britain should have a voice on this and we have common interests across the board and that extends right out as the people whether they're like um, parents of kids at school where things weird things are going on or whether they're farmers or in hospitality we all have a common interest uh, to unite around these issues and say, you know, our voices, our interests are really paramount. Exactly, because, you know, we're all going to pass away one day and so this could happen to any of us. Now, there is this wider debate at the moment, Alan, that's ongoing. Um, and by the way, we've got two minutes left. So um, just to give you an idea of time um, uh, around euthanasia and whether that actually should be made legal. What are your thoughts and Together's um, thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on this is that uh, I, you know, my dad had um, motor neuron disease, a very debilitating illness, and it's terrible. And, what, you know, people suffer with cancer. Uh, but, you know, my mum's also got MS. I wouldn't want someone coming along going, right, there you go, you've got to pop off now. There's been a big discussion in the environmental movement of coffin dodges and too many resources, a Malthusian disgusting view that there's too many humans sort of consuming toxically everything and it doesn't take a genius to work out this whole idea that the idea that state mandates killing people just having seen the last few years could is very dangerous and very problematic now there are all sorts of informal decisions that are made right with families and others at very critical points uh, when it really is end of life right that that is about being humane and reflective and pain management there's a whole range of things like that but the idea that you uh, sanction just killing people and the state doing it is very dangerous. Uh, so that's where I stand on that. And I think it's, it's a very emotive issue that can be presented in certain ways, but it, we should have real pause 
to think that the state can say, right, we're going to be able to just kill people. We, we don't have the death penalty in Britain. Some people think we should do, but we do not. And uh, this is something that, you know, people worry quite rightly about you know, digital ID and central bank. Yeah, exactly. Um, Alan. Life or death. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, tr- I, after the last four years, I trust the state with very little. Now, very, very quickly, we're coming to the end of the show now, Alan. Tell people where they can find out more about Together. You can come to togetherdeclaration.org. It's on our website and at TogetherDeck on Twitter. Please do come join us. We rely on members. People always say, where do you get your money from? We get it from ordinary people who want an insurance policy to defend their freedoms and rights. So get involved. We'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, James. Brilliant. Alan Miller, thank you so much for joining me at the protest in London. Um, to the rest of you, don't go anywhere. Stick with us on TNT. TNT.